0: The idea of anti-fragility is something that gets beaten around a bit, like us, can actually get stronger through the beating. And it really matters that there's a beating and then a rest period, and then a beating and a rest period. So you don't want chronically to stress out an, an organism like us because that just creates trauma and it creates decay. Think about it like a muscle. If I never work out my muscle, it'll decay. If I only work out my muscle, it'll decay. If I work my muscle out and then I rest it, and then I work my muscle out and then I rest it, it'll get bigger. And what we're in right now is a spot of, you know, we're getting worked out pretty heavily. You know, our whole bodies are getting shaken, and we're finding out places that maybe aren't as strong as we want them to be, and we can take action to address that. And this could be a very anti-fragile moment where people get beat up, we get punched in the face collectively, and we come out of it with stronger faces.
1: Welcome to the Best Self-Management Podcast. I'm David Hassel. And I'm Shane
2: Metcalf. Me and David have been working together along with our co-founder, Nazar, and all the amazing other people that are a part of 15.5 for the last seven years. And we are not the same people that we were seven years ago.
1: One of the things we're a big stand for is like, how do we actually embrace the whole person and understand that can we support someone in thriving in their whole life? And if we do, then they're probably gonna contribute more at work.
2: Your mission is to attract the best talent, retain your high performers, and maximize everyone's potential. Welcome back to the Best Self-Management Podcast. I'm Shane Metcalf. And I'm David Hassel. Really excited to have our guest today, Max Yoder. Max is the CEO and co-founder of Lessonly, the training software company that helps teams learn, practice, and do better work. He's also the author of Do Better Work, a book about being a better teammate. Max lives in Indianapolis, Indiana, with his wife, Jess, He was cut from the basketball two years in a row, basketball team two years in a row. Max, really good to have you on the show. We're really excited to dig in. What a wild time we're living in, and it feels like just a golden opportunity to learn a little bit more about your story, about the Lesson Lee story, and how this kind of collective stress test we're all in is showing up for your company, for you personally, what we're learning, how we're growing through all of this.
0: Amen. Well, thanks for having me, David and Shane. We were supposed to have this conversation in January and I, and I got sick and what a different conversation it would have been. Uh, a lot has changed from January to April and I'm interested to talk to you about it.
2: It, it would have been really funny if we had recorded and you were coughing and then, <laughs> then it comes out right now and we're like, oh shit. Oh
0: yeah, that right would have been so down. good. <laughs> no. Thanks for letting me reschedule, but I'm so happy to be here.
2: So Max, We'd love to just hear a little bit, you know, you've built a pretty extraordinary company and we we love how aligned it is with the philosophy of best self-management. You know, we were just talking in the preamble here, how you are a very different person than when you started the company and that when you started the company, it wasn't a mission driven company. And then the mission revealed itself almost maybe as a surprise. And then in that process, it's also, transformed you you know you you're a different person than you were eight years ago and of course we all are different people than we are eight years ago but sometimes events and the cultures that we're immersed in have a profound impact on our growth and development so we'd love to just hear a little bit of that story
0: yeah i'd love to tell you um when leslie got started we just saw an opportunity in the training space and you know we started investigating it and as you mentioned you know it took three years for us to have enough customers Um, and be engaged with those customers to realize, oh, this is pretty special what we're doing. You know, when people do better work, they live better lives. And when I say that, what I mean is we're helping people understand what to do, why it's important to do it, and then how to do it. And when you give people that information, you know, they're better equipped. And then we help them practice, you know, uh, that information and actually build the muscles to do it. When they leave work, if they've had a good day, they take that good day home with them. And the opposite is true, right? You have a tough day at work, that can come home with you as well. So what we were learning was we're enabling people uh, to do better work, and that doesn't just stop at the workplace; it transcends the workplace, which is very cool. And in the process of that, you know, growing the company to we have 170 full time uh, teammates now. And in the process of that, what the company really did for me was it pressured me in spots that I I would have otherwise probably always resisted growing. Uh, the most important one, I think, is there's a phrase called emotional slavery. And it's this idea of I'm responsible for everybody's feelings. And this was something that I, that I believed for most of my life uh, is that if people were not, you know, having a good day or if they were struggling, I needed to fix it. And really what it was, was just a big old distraction from my own problems. But what ultimately I learned is as we grew the company, you know, we hit 50 people and I couldn't take any more feelings. I really hit my breaking point of, I can't do any more feelings. There's just too much to take on. So my thought then was, okay, well, maybe I'll just kind of put myself in a corner. Maybe I'll just kind of hide away from all this. We'll hire a talent leader, uh, and they can take care of it. And we hired a woman named Megan Jarvis, who's absolutely been wonderful. But that kind of approach of, hey, I don't want it to do with anybody's feelings anymore, that didn't work because that's kind of why I like this job is relationships. So if I'm kind of separating myself from everybody's feelings, that's it's not really fun for me, you know. So uh, there was. It turns out there's a third way. Thank, thank the Lord. Uh, And the third way is called emotional liberation. And this is this idea of I can be compassionate and listen to an individual, but I don't have to carry their weight. And they're not even asking Mm. me to carry their weight. They just want to be heard. And a lot of times hearing is enough, right? Hearing is is, is helpful enough. But, you know, I like to think about it as I have a cup. And my cup was overflowing with other people's feelings because I was letting that happen. And now I have a way to let those feelings not not pour in so much, but maybe drip in. Because you know, there's still a leak for me. You know, it's not it's impossible for me not to carry something, but it's dripping now instead of dumping in. And based on the person, you know, I can uh, I'm just much better at it. I would have never grown in that way, and that's a fundamentally important way for me to grow. Because now I, there's a limitless capacity for my ability to hear. Right, whereas before I was really constrained. In kind of being a slave to everybody's feelings. And I would have never really hit that head on because I don't think I would have seen it so clearly, felt it so thoroughly. And, you know, it was a difference between learning to fix it or not growing the business. And, you know, growing the business was pretty darn important. So I had to learn how to fix it. And it's by no means is it fixed, right? It's a practice. It's not a solution. Like I'm practicing emotional liberation. It's not like solved like a light switch, but I'm really grateful for the practice because it just opened up a whole new gear for me.
2: And I think what's so cool is that, you know, when we start thinking about how do we move from the world that said, no feelings and and emotions do not belong in the office. And then we kind of are in this transition into a new world of, Hey, actually, yeah, emotions are one of the keys to high performance. And we need to integrate them. We need to actually allow that flood of emotions to pour into our companies and pour into our hearts. But what the hell do I do when I'm overwhelmed? And so learning, how to listen, and how to also not take people's shit on. And what's so cool about that is that that is not just a business skill. That is a fundamental primary life skill that will make every relationship in your life better.
0: Amen. Amen. And I wouldn't wouldn't have found it. So that's just, I mean, that is just a profound way that my life has been changed by the business.
1: I think there's a lot of people who are just you know naturally very empathic and I think they you end up conflating that ability to connect emotionally and be open to people's emotions mm-hmm. with the unconscious way you might take those things on. I'm just curious for people who are listening and maybe uh, relating with that like what does that practice actually look like for you? Like how do you listen compassionately and empathize with someone allow them space to express their emotions. And what are you actually doing internally for yourself to not take that on?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. It's fundamentally important for me to realize that I had permission, like just understanding there's three options was the first step, you know, having an awareness that, Oh, I'm an emotional, uh, I'm what Marshall Rosenberg who wrote nonviolent communication would call an emotional slave. And that's a choice. And then he would call obnoxiousness, you know, the side of, I don't want to deal with anybody else's feelings. And he's like, that's usually where you go after you get really frustrated with being an emotional slave for a long time. It's like, screw it, (laughs) screw it. Uh, And then, and then he's like, Hey, there's a middle ground. So the awareness was really helpful. And then recognizing uh, after having that awareness that I can't fix anything for anyone, right? The, The trauma that I would let go into my cup, it wasn't serving the individual. It wasn't an upside, right? There was not an upside for me and there's no upside for them. My whole job is to model personal development, model personal growth, model healing. That's, that's probably the best way to put it, just to heal myself. I can't heal anybody else. I never could, but I can be there as support for the individual. So I think the difference is in, you know, enablement. Uh, if I try to be too helpful, I can just enable. I can enable somebody to stay in the same spot. If I support, I can encourage, uh, but supporting is not enabling. And they're hard to tell the difference, but over time, you know, I think it becomes clearer. So I think first and foremost, awareness, and then second, realizing it wasn't helping. You know, I'm not helping if I continue to take, put stuff in my cup. It diminishes my energy, and then I can't give energy. So those are a couple of things. I'm sure there's more, but those are the first two that come to mind. That's great. That's super helpful. Thanks for asking.
2: Well, you know, it's interesting because if we recognize that we cannot heal other people, we only have the ability to work on ourselves, to excavate our own shadows, to... Right you know, go through and, and process and release our own traumas. What is really incredible about that is that the consciousness of the founder is going to infuse the entire culture, you know, amen. it has a disproportionate impact on everything else. I like to say that the conscious, that, you know, that a culture is a, a holographic representation of the consciousness of the founder.
0: Mm, I had not heard that. I, I, I like that.
2: And and so it's like, as we actually take that hundred percent accountability to heal ourselves, to work on our own stuff, to become our best selves, we are inherently building a culture with those same principles and that same permission for everyone else. You nailed it. We can't force people. It's like, and it's really interesting. And, you know, I I love the parallels between our companies. You know, we're about, we're 200 people right now, exactly 200 people actually, which is such a fascinating moment of growth. Yeah, it's cool. And there's so many feelings. There are a lot of human emotions, and especially right now, emotions are up.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And I'm curious, in this middle of this crisis, in the middle of the entire rug getting pulled out from under the world, and things changing rapidly before our very eyes, how are you responding? How is Lessonly adapting and getting mutated and changed and... You know, how is your crisis leadership going right now?
0: Yeah, I would say I am very much learning uh, how to be a crisis leader because I don't have any experience in this. You know, if you follow Leslie's trend line, it follows the trend line of economic growth. You know, we started in 2012 things were already on their way up at that time, you know, like, and, and I, I, I was calling that out ahead of this, knowing that there was something, you know, assuming there'd be some time when the trend line wasn't going the right direction and knowing that was going to be so challenging because to date it hasn't been that way. We've just kind of, we've ridden the wave of growth. So, Here's what I'm learning really quickly, is the same stuff still applies. If I use the tools in my well-being toolbox, I'm doing everybody a service. If I don't use the tools in my well-being toolbox, I am not doing everybody a service, right? So uh, what can I control? Am I controlling it? That has always been important. It is incredibly important now. What I hope this is showing people is if they don't have a lot of tools in their emotional well-being toolbox, you know, they maybe aren't exercising, maybe they aren't meditating, maybe they're not eating well or sleeping well. Uh, Maybe they're drinking before bed, you know, all stuff that'll just hurt your energy. That becomes more clear uh, and that becomes a guide for them to go, okay, I should do something different because we might've been able to get away with that before this, but I don't think anybody's getting away with it now. You know, it is showing up very clearly if we don't, if we're not using the tools in our toolbox and if we don't have the tools in our toolbox, that's even worse, right? But uh, I hope it becomes a moment for people to go, oh, that's why, that's why it's so important to have those tools in my toolbox. That's why it's so important to use them. Because stuff like this can happen, and I don't want to be caught flat footed again. And by exactly, yeah, I'm totally been flat footed in certain ways, right? Um, by no means am I saying, Oh, I was ready for this. I was not ready for this at all. Uh, but I'm really f- feel grateful to have had some tools in the toolbox that they still work. Uh, and it's my job to keep using them.
1: To support you and your team and your company in this transition to remote work, I want to share some great resources we have that can help. If you go to 155.com resources, you can find all the recorded webinars we've done on remote work. At 155.com academy, we have vital skills for managers, which includes our best self manager certification program, which is a free course that all of your managers can take around best self management. At 155.com services, we've got many leadership resources available, like our remote work essentials workshop. And we're also giving away free extended access to 155 to teams, departments, and organizations of up to 50 people through June 15th of 2020. You can find that at 155.com slash get started. Yeah, I feel like Shane. You you, you turned me onto this idea of uh, the CEO being the chief emotional officer, not mm. just the chief executive officer. And I think that uh, you know I've been talking about this as well. Someone recently asked me. They said, you know, what's the first thing as a leader you need to do in a crisis? And I said, well, the first thing you got to do is take care of yourself. And it, exactly what you just said, Max. It's the it's the sleep, the food, the exercise, the meditation, because how I show up in front of our two hundred people is going to influence their sense of trust in my leadership, you know, even in a moment where the world doesn't feel okay that we might have a moment of okayness together that we're in this together. Uh so it's awesome to see you modeling that and you know, to talk about that alignment.
0: Well, I want to be clear. I have had days where I didn't model it, which is why it's so evident to me that I need to model it. You know, it's not like yeah. I have had days where I did not do the practices that work and um it's too expensive to do that right now. It's probably always been too expensive. And I don't mean expensive in a dollar standpoint. It just is too much. <laughs> yes. pe- pe- people can't afford it right now. You know we don't have a whole lot of gas in the tank as it is. All
2: right, let's open up that toolbox. You have your own personal practices and then you have the, the company culture. You have the collective toolbox of Lessonly. Yeah. And I'm curious, what, what's the responsibility of a company in this moment to provide more tools for people's toolboxes and, or kind of, uh, you know, we're all sovereign agents and it's up to the individual to pursue those. And as long as you do your job, then it's okay. And it, and that's your choice, whether you pick tools up or
0: not. Yeah. I think you're a tremendous liability right now in the business. If you don't pick up those tools because, uh, you can say, Hey, I'm fine. I'll get through it. But, uh, it is highly likely you will, uh, throw your shadow onto other people if you don't take care of it. It's highly likely that somebody else will pay the price for not using those tools.
2: I, I love that you said that because it's it's confrontational. Tell me why. I, I mean, I think that it's like if somebody is not picking up is not taking that accountability for their emotional experience and for their shadows and for the the places in their life that have been really impacted and they don't actually own that that it then gets projected onto co-workers. It gets projected onto the company at large. Yeah. And actually putting an enormous onus on the individual to own their own shit.
0: Yeah. And if somebody doesn't own their own shit, well, all I can control is me. So uh, my friend, Jimmy Miller likes to say that uh, he's, he, he quotes Thomas Aquinas uh, saying that the two kind of ultimate virtues are um, charity and grace and every other virtue kind of uh, waterfalls from charity and grace. So <laughs> people, like me, will have days where they don't own their stuff, right, and where they're not doing the practices. I know that because I've been that. In those days, somebody can respond to me uh, by villainizing me and saying, hey, you suck, you're not doing your job, but that's probably not going to help. That's probably going to make the shadow even bigger. Or they can say, charity, grace. Those are my two playbooks, right? Charity is this idea of I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that you're trying, that you're, that, you're, that you're committed to getting better. And today was a tough day, right? Today could have been an incredibly tough day. And then I'm going to give you grace if I find out that maybe you're not doing your practices and it's a tough day and I'm going to give you another chance. That's what grace is all about, right? Like, hey, if you're not out, you're still my teammate and I still want to be supportive of you, even if today was a tough day for you. And maybe I felt that tough day because I'm, mm. I, it's going to, that's going to roll on other people. I'm going to roll on other people. They're going to roll on me. So if we villainize them and say, you're not doing your practices, you know, get better. You know, we, we, the only reason we do that is we're projecting, right? We're projecting uh, and, re- and not recognizing that we ourselves don't do our practices every day, you know? So I got some compassion for some folks who don't do their practices every day because I know what it's like. So my job is charity and grace. So we got an answer for, you know, when somebody doesn't do it and when somebody does. And when somebody does, we hug, celebrate, you know, virtual hugs now. You and then when we hug, don't, hug, you know, yeah. charity, <laughs> grace.
2: Uh, it's, uh, I, I feel my own heart soften in that, just, uh, just contemplating charity and grace, you know, because like right now I'm I love in it. a little fight with my brother mm. and it's kind of like, oh, that asshole. And it's hard, right? You know, especially family when it's so close and it's, uh, they get in right to the deepest triggers. Yeah. And just well, in that contemplation of charity and grace, it's like, okay, I could have a little more charity. I could have sure. a little more grace. And it kind of instantly loosens things up a little bit.
0: Good. But I'll tell you, man, the hardest folks in my uh, experience to have charity and grace with are my family, my parents, my brother, you know, like it's, they're the hardest ones for me. And, and, you know, I think that I have rope with them and I, and I take advantage of that rope, you know, like they're my family, but that is the hardest place for me. You know, I can, it is much easier for me to give charity and grace for the exact same behavior to a teammate than it is to my mother. And that is asinine, <laughs> you know, that's asinine, but I'm telling you, yeah, and that's, that's my behavior
2: last quote he says if you think you're enlightened go spend two weeks with your parents
0: amen amen <laughs> yeah. and, and I love them right and they deserve the exact same amount of charity and grace as everybody else but i I'm simply saying I understand what you're saying when it's tough with the with the brother or tough with the family um because we're so close to them
1: reminds me of, of some of the practices i you know i love i lo- I love this language and and things that you know Shane we could adopt uh and evolve even our practices inside 15.5. We just recast our core values recently, Uh, one of them being uh, cultivate relational mastery, which is this idea that we believe that most organizations don't have these skills, right? Mm -hmm. They don't have these ideas around how do we relate with each other uh, in ways that don't end up causing resentment and drama and politics and gossip, which is what most organizations are rife with. And I think there are you know, you have to have practices like you just described for us. It comes down to granting trust. It comes down to assuming positive intent, which I think goes to that, that charity, uh, charity point. Curious about what other, what other things you guys do internally to foster, uh, that either, you know, on your leadership team or within your employees, are there other things that you as an organization orient around?
0: Yeah, I think it all boils down to two things. What do you yeah. do? And what do you celebrate? And there's some, mm-hmm. there's things we orient around, right? But we, we, we find those things and we orient around them by what do we do and what do we celebrate? And my bias is to think that those are the two ways we make our biggest impact on the world. So you notice in, in the doing and celebrating, it doesn't have anything to do with getting anybody else to do anything. It's just uh-huh. you focusing on what do I do and what do I celebrate? Yep. Um, so if I, you know, what do I do, that's pretty obvious, right? What's my behavior? And am I living into the behavior that I want other people to be uh, to live into? If the answer is no, then my job is either loosen my standards, not hold people accountable to things that I don't do, or to live into the standards that I want to see in the world. And then the celebration is, you know, there's certain things I'm never going to do. There's certain skills and talents I'm never gonna have, but I still appreciate them. And celebrating them is saying that I, I find I see value in that. I see positive value in that. And I think everything's got a mixed bag of positivity and negativity, but hey, that hits me in a way that provides positive feelings. I'm gonna celebrate that sort of thing.
2: Like like what's the tactical approach for how you celebrate?
0: Yeah. So uh, one way to celebrate would be at an all team meeting, you know, calling somebody's behavior out that I'm really grateful for or, you know, on a one on one and saying, hey, uh, there was an instance where, you know, a customer was really frustrated and I saw you handle the frustration this way. You know, you didn't escalate, you de escalated, And here's how I saw you de escalate, And here's why that means so much to me, whether it worked or not. Right. Because you can't control how the customer reacts. You can only control what you did. And if you did the right motions and the customer didn't react how he wanted to, that doesn't mean you did the wrong thing. It just means they didn't react how we wanted them to. So in that case, you know, uh, that's praise. And just saying I'm grateful for the way you handled it, regardless of the outcome. Uh, That's celebration. And what do I do and what I celebrate is what more comes from what I do and what I celebrate. And you've maybe heard the phrase more is caught than taught, which is probably a controversial thing for somebody who makes training software to say. But I don't think it's in any way kind of conflicts with what we do. More is caught than taught just means if you want the things that you're teaching people to stick, do them because people will catch what you do. They will not catch what you say. Um, and so, you know, more is caught than taught is, Hey, you can say it all day long, but if you're not doing it, you know, don't expect anything to stick. And that's the same with training programs. You can put it in the lessons, but if the people on the team who are setting a tone, aren't doing the things in the lessons, don't expect anybody else to.
2: Yeah. It's a quite a critical self-examination of our own integrity. How do we actually do the things that we want other people to do? And it's, it's a, it's a great exercise, right? It's like, okay, right now, what are my expectations of the world? And am I actually meeting those expectations on my
0: own? I, I think it's the only yeah. exercise. I don't know if there's another exercise that, that matters. I think this is where all of our problems come from. We have special logic for our own behavior, and we have different logic for other people's behavior. So, wow. and that is a, a traumatic-
2: I, I uh, in, in business, because we're coming out of a hierarchical model where, okay, cool, as the founders, were inherently uh, in a higher power position mm-hmm. than everyone else. And so I don't really need to practice what I preach because I'm not the kind of person I'm preaching to. You know, like I don't really need to follow the company of rules and values because I'm the founder. So I get this play by special rules and then it just creates corruption right from the very source and it bleeds down and other people see that and say, cool, I don't need to do what I'm telling my team to do because I am above
0: you in the hierarchy. Right, right. They don't see your rationale. They see your behavior and that is what matters. Like I can rationalize anything, but people aren't going to see my rationale. They're not going to even going to ask. They're, they're literally going to just intuit, uh, intuitively mimic what I do. So yeah, it's not going to be clear to others. If I give myself special logic, it ain't going to work. If you give yourself special logic, it ain't going to work. And yeah. by no means am I knocking, my, uh, knocking this out of the park every day, right? This is a practice. This is the idea of I need to keep an eye on what do I need people to do and, and am I doing it? And if the answer is no, that's where my growth is. That's, you know, that's the roadmap to my growth. Um, and I, don't, yeah, I just don't know if it's any more complicated than that.
1: So, how do you think of applying all of this to and all these ideas to creating more resilience in our organizations yeah. right now? I mean, we're we're at a a moment that is not unprecedented in human history, but it's certainly unprecedented in our lifetimes. Yeah, uh, like you said, we could not have predicted this. For, Nobody's ready for this. No, and we got to navigate through this. Um, so, you know, what are the ways that you know you're leaning on some of these practices yourself or your team are to to create a sense of resilience at Lessonly?
0: Yeah, if you have? I don't know if you all have ever heard of the concept of anti fragility, but I think it's a really important one right now. Incredible book. Yeah, incredible book. If we could put that book on everybody's bookshelf right now, I think there'd be a sense of relief that people would feel. Because the idea of anti-fragility is something that gets beaten around a bit, like, a, like, a, like us, uh, can actually get stronger through the beating. A- and it really matters that there's a beating and then a rest period, and then a beating and a rest period. So you don't want chronically to stress out an, an organism like us because that just creates trauma and it creates decay. It's just, think about it like a muscle. If I never work out my muscle, it'll decay. If I only work out my muscle, it'll decay if I work my muscle out and then I rest it and then I work my muscle out and then I rest it, it'll get bigger. And what we're in right now is a spot of, you know, we're getting worked out pretty heavily. Uh, we're, you know, our whole bodies are getting shaken and we're finding out places that maybe aren't as strong as we want them to be. And we can take action to address that. And this could be a very anti-fragile moment where people, uh, get beat up. We get punched in the face collectively and we come out of it with stronger faces. Right, because like in that
2: model, it's like there's fragile, resilient, and anti-fragile systems.
0: Yeah, fragile, uh, fragile, robust. So robust would be it gets beat up, it doesn't get better. Right. Exactly. Uh, so it's like a med- metal pipe. Like you can bang around a metal pipe, <laughs> right. and it doesn't get better.
2: And so it's so interesting because it's there's no guarantee that we emerge stronger as individuals, as companies, and as a society from this. You know, and so how you know can we stack the deck in our favor to become anti-fragile? And it's really interesting, actually. I love that you brought this up because I, I love that book and it really struck a deep chord in me when I read it several years ago. And I inherently, anti-fragility is part of my worldview as a result. Mm-hmm. It's understanding like, whoa, this, it sucks. It, it, it This is really hard. And there is an inordinate amount of suffering that is happening right now. You know, I have... I have a lot of artist friends who are just decimated right now. Mm-hmm. And I believe that this can be an opportunity to, to be anti fragile, to actually emerge a, a happier, healthier, uh, more, more well integrated society. And I love it. David's son just walked in in the room right now. We're watching each other on video and, uh, his son just walked in and it's so good. It's, it's like these moments oh. of humanity, they're flooding into the business world.
1: And he's got a frog in his hand that he just caught in the creek.
0: Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. He just wanted to show you. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Shane, it is all about how we look at it. And and, and then it's also, but it's not, it's not just about how we look at it. For my case, it's how I look at it, right? Because I still uh, have an income coming in, right? We need to make sure this doesn't last so long that it creates chronic stress for individuals. Because- it's not going to be a matter of just getting your head in the right spot. It might be a matter of getting your head in the right spot, but wow, I don't want anybody to have to get their head in the right spot under chronic stress, right? Ideally, this does not become a, an enduring, you know, depression because there's a point where you know it's just too much for anyone. So I don't want anybody to hear this and be like, "Well, it's just a matter of my brain." Like, you know, there's there's f- physiological needs uh, that might not there's needs that might not be being met right now.
2: That's that's where we're fragile, right? It's not yeah, really inherently anti-fragile. Yeah. there are certain prerequisites for us to actually get stronger and to not go into post-traumatic stress, but actually go into post-traumatic growth. Right. Right. That, that yeah. recovery piece where you actually take a bow from the beating. Right. And get a good night's sleep.
0: Yeah. And you have support. So what I hope this, you know, I think the support part that I remember reading a New York times article about uh, child soldier's, uh, and the child soldiers, you know, ne- there should never be a child soldier, right? I think we have uh, evolved to believe that, hey, let's not put soldiers on any front lines that are kids, but that ha- that still happens. Um, and they looked at the child soldiers when they came back, if they were reintegrated into their communities uh, and if they weren't. So some child soldiers were not reintegrated. They were actually shunned for what they did. Other child soldiers were reintegrated. They found that the reintegrated ones, the ones who were supported after the trauma, had a much higher rate uh, of coming back from it. And the ones who are not integrated had uh, tremendous challenges. So what does that mean for us? Well, we need to be supporting one another after this, right? Uh, through it yeah. and after it. And we need to embrace the fact that this was challenging. We need to talk about it. We need to make sure we're not just leaning on one person in our lives, like our you know, significant other, but we're building bigger networks. Um, my, my friend calls it, you know, a lot of people walking on a tightrope right now where they have one person who is their support. And if you put too much stress on that one rope, you fall and, and that rope, you know, might be so stressed that it leaves. So how do you get more ropes under you? So it's not a tight rope anymore. It's now a net. That is the job is to create a net under us so that if no matter what one thing, you know, gets, gets busted and maybe gets too stressed, we have more people there to help us. Beautiful. And I think that's how we come back from this.
2: Yeah. You know, and I think that it seems like an opportunity here is that our companies aren't just a job, but the mm-hmm. relationships that we're building inside of our companies are that net,
0: amen, amen, and they, they certainly can be. We just need to allow them to be.
2: Yeah, right, and, and right because I think that we we want to be that support. We want to actually, you know, uh, have that charity and grace towards our coworkers, where they be, don't become just these these professionals that we're in either competition with or a kind of transactional relationship with. Amen. A very deep human desire to have have more meaningful relationships with the people that we spend the most time with.
0: Yeah. And where does that go wrong? I think it goes wrong at a fundamental spot of provoking compliance using fear. So I think historically, that's the the playbook of work, right? Let's scare people into compliance, command and control, domination. And I think that gives a sense of compliance, but it's a totally pseudo compliance. Because as soon as when you're under somebody's thumb, all you want to do is get out. And if you get a chance to take from the person whose thumb you're under, you're gonna do it. If you get a chance to cut a corner from the person whose thumb you're under, you're gonna do it. Because you resent being under somebody's thumb. So the other approach is, hey, we love on other people. We love on our teammates just like anybody else. And I don't mean love in a way of we can't have accountability. I actually think that brings better accountability. If we we, we bring love and compassion, and we create guardrails, right? We create clarity around what the role requires, uh, what it needs, so that we can hold people accountable Uh, And as we, you know, we're not going to have perfect clarity straight out of the gate. We 1% at a time, build more clarity through agreements over time. But if we love on people and we get agreements, we can do both at the same time. But I think some people think that a loving culture means a lack of accountability. Well, I have to fire people is what I hear a lot. I'm like, you can still fire people because you are setting expectations with them. You're getting agreements with them
2: while loving them. While loving them. I I can only love people, but then when I have to fire them, I'm going to stop loving them. In fact, actually that's the moment when you need to love them even harder.
0: Amen. And, and like, oh my gosh, a freaking man. I mean, the idea of I can't love somebody and hold them accountable, it's asinine. I mean, think about how it far is. you will go for somebody you love. You know, it creates this real, true accountability, not a pseudo accountability. And yeah, loving people out the door is the most important time to show you actually love them. And those are the haunt moments that haunt me the most is the times when I didn't do that. You know, the times when I would play that back and I want to do it again.
1: So yeah, I mean, I, I love what you're saying around the, you know, the accountability and the love. One of the things I often talk about is this idea that companies seem to want to decide whether they're like a sports team analogy or whether they're gonna be the the family. And really what people are saying is like, oh, we're choosing to be a family, and that means we're gonna care for people over the results and we're gonna be light on accountability, or we're gonna be the sports team where we're gonna care about results over the relationships and be more aggressive and obnoxious at times. And I don't, you know, we're we're out saying like, no, no, you, it's actually better to choose both. Yes. Like you can do both. You can care about performance while caring about people. And just like you said, as long as you have those clear agreements, it doesn't mean that you have to go soft on people. Right. Like you need to hold people to what they said they're going to do, but with, with care. Uh, so we're, you know, very much aligned on that. That's, that's the world that I want to see us all live into. And, uh, yeah, excited to excited to hear about your journey.
0: Well, David, the way you summed that up was excellent. Cause I'd never heard it summed up that, that, that cleanly and think, think about it, they're both extremes, um, you know, operating at the exactly. extreme of a family or operating at the extreme of a sports team. It's like, anytime we're operating an extreme, we're probably doing it wrong. So how do we yeah. take, how do we take, you know, the two ends of the extreme and find the divine middle where we, we marry the best parts of both. And that's, middle, th- that's what you just described.
2: Yeah. Really, really good.
0: The middle path, the middle path you bet.
1: Exactly. Max, this has been awesome. Really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and spending some
0: time with us today. David and Shane, I needed this today. Thank you for making time.
2: So Max, where can people go to learn more about Lessonly?
0: Yeah, Lessonly.com. L-E-S-S-O-N-L-Y.com. We make training software for sales teams and customer service teams. So we'd love to talk to you if you have a sales team or customer service team, and you want to get them all on the same page, help them build the same muscles. And if you uh, want to learn about the book, it's dobetterwork.com. And you can check out the book there. I write about some of the stuff I talked about and other principles that help with teamwork.
2: Well, Max, may we all have a little bit more charity and a little bit more grace for ourselves and for the world. Amen Thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you. It was great.
2: Thank you to our producer, Counter Creative,
1: to our executive producer, David Misney, and guest coordinators, Sydney Lee and Suzanne Haight. One of the easiest things you can do to help us spread the message of being and becoming your best self at work is to write a review on Apple Podcasts, or just share this episode's link on your favorite social media channel. If you have any questions or comments, please email me and Shane at podcast at 155.com. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, thank you.